I think many of us remember the aerial images of the Picton Farm property and the evidence unearthed there that told a horrific tale of murdered women women and a killer allowed to prey on society's most vulnerable for years. The first raid on that farm that would become the largest crime scene in this country's history took place 20 years ago this week. Picton, now in his 70s, is behind bars, sentenced to life in 2007 for six murders with enough evidence to charge him with another 20. But what about the lessons his crime left behind? The lessons many vowed would have to be learned to honor the memory of his victims. Have they been learned? And if not, why not? Joining me now is former Vancouver Police Detective Constable and lead investigator on the Picton case, Lorimer Shenher. Now an author, including of Lonely Section of Hell, the botched investigation of the serial killer who almost got away, and This One Looks Like a Boy, My Gender Journey to Life as a Man. Lorimer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. For listeners who may not be familiar with your role in the case, uh, you'd been head of Vancouver Police's Missing Persons Unit for just a few days, I think, when you first heard the name Robert Picton uh, in connection with several missing women from the downtown east side in Vancouver. But it would be four more years before that raid. And how would you describe to listeners the four years and the work that you did trying to solve the case? Well, you know, those were those were difficult years. And, and I should clarify too, I wasn't the head of the missing persons unit. I, I wasn't a detective in there, but I had a, a sort of a part-time sergeant, which I know is a small point, but it was one of the issues that, um, that just indicated how little uh, energy and, and resources was actually devoted to this case. Uh, the four years were challenging and the, and the two years and some where I was searching for the women uh, was incredibly frustrating, not just from a, from a human perspective in terms of what these women um, went through in their lives when we knew where they were, but also just how completely they had disappeared and how little it seemed that uh, police really cared about where they were or how we could find them. Uh, We just, we weren't able to, to generate the kind of uh, resource support that we should have had. Um, and it was, you know, it was, frankly, it was, it was very disappointing. So it was a difficult, you know, time as an investigator, but it was certainly very difficult for the families of these women. You talked about this a lot in, in, in other interviews in your book, the attitudes that stood in the way of solving the crimes when, uh, you know, earlier than they were, uh, earlier than they did. Yeah, you know, Ben, you know, this is the part that I find probably the most discouraging is that the attitudes uh, and the stereotypes that many, uh, not all of us in policing, but many um, of the people that we worked with held about these women and the kinds of lives that they led really got in the way of finding them. And it got in the way of uh, our being able to generate um a sense of humanity around these women. And, and I think that the frustrating part for me is we, we still, uh, we saw that same sort of dynamic play out in Toronto with the Bruce MacArthur case where, um, you know, you had investigators that really, you know, uh, did not have any comprehension of the lives of um, men in the, in the, in the gay community, many of whom were immigrants, people of color, uh, there was just this inability of investigators to actually imagine those lives because they were so different from their own. And so they applied stereotype types, which is what happened with us as well. There were so many stereotypes about the women and what they, you know, that, that if they were missing, it must be because they wanted to be missing. And if they were, uh, you know, very uh, 
counterintuitively, the idea that if they live high-risk lifestyles and they go missing, then they're less at risk than if they don't live high-risk lifestyles. And yet we have people, police people telling us things like that, which was just mind-boggling. Yeah, you brought that up. I read the op-ed that you wrote uh, during the Bruce MacArthur case and how you referred to the the idea uh, as well in other writings that this idea that people who are highly vulnerable that go missing are somehow less in danger. I mean, people, nobody just vanishes, especially from a tight-knit community. And you, you refer to a lot of those communities as being quite tight-knit. People knew each other. People knew when someone went missing. They just weren't didn't want to go talk to the police about it necessarily and try to break down those barriers was very difficult. It's still very difficult. Absolutely. And I think that that speaks to that lack of understanding again, because there is this idea and, and I saw it myself, you know, I started as a patrol officer in the downtown East side, and this was back in, in 91. And it initially I thought, Oh, this is just a, you know, it's kind of the wild West down here. It's a bit of a free for all. Nobody really belongs anywhere. But then you start to get to know the people and you get to know the community and you really see that within those six or eight or 10 square blocks, they are a community and they have people looking out for them. They have um, some incredible community service people who are looking out for them, who are trying to provide them with supports, trying to provide them with you know, mental health care and physical care and housing. And it's just, um, you realize that if people are saying they're missing, then they're missing. They're not, you know, they have less resources than almost anybody in our society. And, and, you know, you and I both have heard lots of stories where people try to disappear people with far greater amounts of resource to do that. And so these women, they were not, you know, they were not getting on a bus and going on a vacation or, or, you know, taking a plane somewhere. I mean, these were women with such severe addiction issues that they would not have been able to not, use drugs for a three or four hour plane ride. I mean, this was, these were the kinds of things we were being told they, where they might be, and it was ludicrous. 20 years after the raid on the Picton farm, I'm speaking with former Vancouver Police Detective Constable and investigator on the Picton case, Laura Mershenher, uh, also author of Lonely Section of Hell, the Boston investigation of a serial killer who almost got away. I was curious, I was reading something that you'd done for the BBC on the 10-year anniversary, and, and it was very raw. It was very, it was still very raw. I'm wondering if you look back now, after 20 years, have you, do you look back at that investigation and how you got through it any differently? I do in some ways, I think, um, you know, with that benefit of time and, and perspective, um, I don't, and a lot of therapy, I'll be honest, I don't bear yeah. quite as much personal um, responsibility for some of those failings. Uh, having said that, I, I still do feel that um, I do feel a lot of that same pain and, and, and uh, frustration that I couldn't have moved the powers that be um, to the extent that I, I should have been able to. Uh, but yeah, with that time and seeing, I think, on a broader scale, the failings of policing systemically and, and as an institution. And I think we're seeing those playing out in fairly real time right now. Um, I am a little bit easier on myself, I think, than I was those you know 10 and 20 years ago. Uh, but I don't think that it will behoove me to completely lose that feeling because I think when we do um, – start to think, oh, well, you know, that's the system and and there's nothing we can do about it. It becomes more difficult to change things. And unfortunately, the more I learn of policing over the years and and continue to see, I I am more convinced than ever 
that it can't be changed from within. And that, you know, this idea of good cops and bad apples, it doesn't wash. This is, this is bad leadership and a bad culture that doesn't, that, that doesn't provide services equally to all people. When you think back now to those days, I remember reading that you felt no elation really, or you felt a lot of mixed emotions the day of the arrest that finally, because you knew the name, you'd seen the name in the past. Um, when you think back to those days now, is there anything that stands out more than that, that sense of, of mixed feelings on the day of the arrest? Is there anything that now stands out from that time that you've, that you've can hold on to? Well, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, in a lot of ways, I actually, there's so much around that time that's hard to remember. And, and I've learned again, you know, through a lot of therapy that a lot of that is grief. And sometimes the function of grief is we just don't have the clearest memory of things. Um, I do think that that feeling really hasn't changed, which is that, that inevitability. I knew that day, um, was going to come and, or I would get that call and that the farm was being searched. I knew that day was going to come. I think a, a few of us did. And, um, so when it did, I just, you know, I, I was, I still have that same sick to my stomach feeling just knowing, you know, how many women actually, could have been saved had we had we been able to act when we when we should have and had the information to act. I'm speaking with uh, former Vancouver Police um, and lead investigator on the Picton case, Lorimer Shenher, uh, 20 years after the raid on the Picton farm in 2002. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the case itself. I was really interested now in talking a bit about the legacy because I know. 10 years ago, you were talking about a provincial inquiry that you weren't so happy with. Uh, then we were looking towards a federal inquiry, then an action plan for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We've had a National Day of Commemoration now on May the 5th. How have you viewed the progress that we've made? And, and is it nearly enough? Well, I don't think it's enough uh, because women are still going missing across the country, especially Indigenous women. Um, and it's unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of things that I think have fueled that like anything, I think over time, uh, the interest wanes and we've got other, other big issues, you know, certainly right in our, right in our field of vision. And so a lot of these things sort of fall by the wayside. People assume that, that it's getting better. Um, you know, uh, the auditor general in BC did a comprehensive report in 2016 looking at all these recommendations and she identified four things that were um that were a problem to even implementing the recommendations and they were funding uh, reporting stakeholder engagement and a lack of a champion um to to make progress and you know i think that kind of sums it up because uh you know these issues they they really require a constant um effort and unfortunately with um you know, the communications and um, I think uh, the messaging that a lot of police um, detachments, uh, departments, policing as an institution has definitely stepped into the 21st century in terms of its messaging. And uh, so we start to see that kind of um, spin, I guess, is probably the best way to term it on, on a lot of these things. And a lot of, you know, every little bit of what might be perceived as progress is often pumped up uh, to make people believe that a, the problem is dealt with and it's not dealt with. And, and, you know, this is, we see it still, some of the cases that go to court 
uh, involving indigenous women and sex, you know, sex workers of all, of all races. And they're still treated like second class citizens. Their cases aren't taken seriously. So it, it hasn't changed that much. The only thing that's really changed is, you know, the police have put a better face on what they're doing. Um, but whether they're actually doing better work, I would, I would really question that. I know you often have to get asked this question, so I apologize in advance. But as you look around you now, even as time has faded a bit, do you think our justice system is any better able to protect the sort of women that were, that fell victim um, 20 some odd years ago now, today as we were then? You know, I, I, I do feel quite a bit of hope in that area because uh, I'm seeing a lot of justice systems in, in the different provinces really looking at systemic racism and whether it's systemic racism amongst um, the law profession and the people trying to, to work as lawyers who are, who are not, um, who are not of the dominant culture. And so I think the more diversity and, and the more intersectionality of experience we can have in all of those areas. Um, obviously those are good things in policing, but they're, they have yet to overcome that culture. Um, but I see it in the legal system a little bit more in the, um, in the legal services side of things. Um, I do see advocacy and uh, you're starting to see judges who are a lot more alive to, um, to the stereotypes and the perceptions um, that, that judges historically have had to, um, to people in, living in poverty, living with drug addiction, mental health issues, sex workers, all those things. So those judgments are slowly changing. I think there is a lot more empathy towards um, the demographic, if you will, that, that made up a lot of our missing women. Um, it's slow and you've still got a lot of dinosaurs in those professions, but you're also getting a lot of, you're getting an infusion of younger, more diverse people coming into those professions who are questioning, you know, they're questioning a colonial system of law. They're questioning colonial based judgments. They're questioning sexist judgments, racist judgments. So I feel very positive about the future. It's encouraging, uh, encouraging after trying. I don't think you were as positive 10 years ago as you sound as sound now. I have about a couple of minutes left. I really just wanted to ask you lastly, just about how you would like this whole, I mean, we may well speak again about this in five years or in 10 years, but as time fades, how would you like people to remember the case? Um, and what should we take away from it? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I was I was in Port Coquitlam not that long ago, and I, there is literally no trace almost of that farm. Um, you know, it just looks like a field. Um, families are, you know, walking by with strollers, and it's great. People are playing soccer out there. There's not much of that property left. So, you know, in many ways, it's easy to forget. I would like people to remember because, I mean, it was and I think my book sort of speaks to that. Uh, it was so, it could have been so easy for this to have never been brought to light for, for, um, for there to have never been a conviction on this, on these cases for these remains to have never been found, um, to give some measure of peace, I guess, to the families. Um, it, that was honestly a fluke <laughs> that it even happened. Mm -hmm. So, I don't want people to forget. And, and 
these women have had some incredible advocates and family members just tirelessly, tirelessly advocating for them and, and searching for them. And, and for those people, so many of them, you know, it hasn't ended. They haven't found their loved one or they're not sure where they are um, or where their remains might be. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it's not, there has not been sort of a neat ending to this. And, and I think that, you know, as with all history, you know, if we, if we forget it, we're doomed to repeat it. And, and that is really my greatest fear is that we'll have a repeat of this, of this type of. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your insight tonight.